0: and the flower grows, and the petal falls, and I am left holding this withered stem. By Ben Murphy
1: It always starts the same. A gasp, and then memories. A life he hasn't lived, but now, suddenly, has. There is confusion, yes, often, but also exhilaration, as though he has suddenly recollected something he has long sought to recall. It is a life's worth of recollections, a life's worth of pleasures and pains and novelty. Is Emil a little addicted to traveling between worlds? Yes, perhaps he is. The first time, he was a teenager, swimming with friends. Or, rather, swimming alone, while his friends begged him to come ashore. The river was polluted, as nearly all water on Ut was, as, indeed, Ut itself was. The river was polluted, and he was going to make himself sick. This is what they shouted at him from the riverbank. Emil just laughed and dove beneath the surface. A streak of fatalism ran strongly through him, even more so than many of Ute's youths. He wanted to scare his friends, so he stayed down in the murk, sank his feet into the mud, and pulled himself to the center of the river, where he doubted they could see him. He could see them, though, and their shapes wavered on the shore water warping their figures into abstraction, four shadows distorted into jagged incoherence. In truth, his skin already itched, and he knew he would regret this soon enough. Not just yet, though. His lungs began to ache, but he could last longer. He rocked gently in the current, the motion of the water bringing coolness and relief. The ache grew sharper, his lungs straining, but still he knew he could last longer. A disconcerting musty taste was on his tongue, and he wondered if some of the water had trickled past his lips. His lungs were about to burst, and it occurred to Emil that perhaps he had misjudged exactly how long he could last. He leapt for the surface, river mud clutching at his feet as he reached for the sky, legs pumping, hands grasping, and just before he broke the surface, he pulled his parents' car into the driveway. He can't go back now. He knows this. Or, he could go back, but what would the point be? Tannis awaiting him, her ceaseless, implacable needling, the rank smell of sweat and ash. Confinement. Oot must now forever be in his past. Around him are the sounds of conversation, happiness, the music of cooking and eating and dishwashing, silverware chiming on plates, the percussion of vegetables sizzling. Someone is singing, though he doesn't know the song, and then, abruptly, He does. Emil is aware, distantly, of his partner, Lisha, beside him, chatting amiably in his direction, though he takes in none of what she says. He is sitting in the town mess, late afternoon sunlight transmuting dust into shafts of gold, and, as memories of this world bubble up through his mind, dread begins to knot his insides. Do you know what it's like for us when you leave, Tana said trying to hold water in my hand, like a dream that slips away the longer I've been awake. That's you. You just slip away, leak out, and all we're left with is your replacement. When I think about something else, when we think about something else, we can remember that you still exist out there somewhere. But as soon as we try and think about you, about why we're hiding the guy who looks like you, it's gone. And I'm just confused. And when you're here, it's impossible to remember anything about him. Like, right now, I know he laughs sometimes. You never do. But that's it. I remember him laughing. Why don't you ever laugh? I do laugh, Emil said. I laugh a lot. I've never heard you laugh. Well, I don't laugh here. I don't laugh on Oot. Damos, what is there to laugh about on this shitty rock? They sat in Emile's cell, he on his bed, Tannis in a chair. She was old enough to be his mother, possibly his grandmother, though on Ut it was difficult to judge anyone's age. The environment could ravage skin and ruin complexions before adolescence had even passed. She was fit, though, as healthy as any Utian could be expected to be, and certainly more energetic than Emile, when he was on Ut, at least. Her hair was long and gray, held loosely at the nape of her neck by a piece of twine tied in a bow, which gave her an incongruous girlishness. Emile no longer recalled what he himself looked like. He hadn't seen his true face, and he didn't know how long. When he tried to envision it, he could call forth only the faces he'd had on other worlds. Of the thirty-odd years he'd lived, he'd spent little more than half on Oot. Calling the room a cell was perhaps inaccurate. It was bigger than a jail cell. He wasn't uncomfortable. But he didn't enjoy spending time here. Or his stand-in didn't. Probably he didn't either. He'd been in this room before, certainly, but it was hard to tell whose memories were whose. They were near Lanis Ulna still. The smell of smoke made its way through the barred window, the scent sharp and chemical. The building had once been a dorm, though the university failed before Emil had been born. The notion of universities existing on Oot struck Emil as somewhat amusing. The notion that education once had value here, even more so. Tanis leaned back in her chair. It squeaked slightly. The room was dirty. Everything at least somewhat run down. Everything cheap, mass-produced. Relics of a civilization dead or dying, depending on your perspective. Relics of his civilization, his true one. Oots. Holy Tan, he hated being here. They have to run and get me when you show up, Tana said. She gestured toward the guard by the door. Or, when it's you again. I don't know what to call the other one. I can't remember his name. Is it the same as yours? Shit, if we keep talking about it, I'll forget there's anyone else at all. Is that what it's like for you? She pressed fingertips to her temples, rubbed them slowly. No. No, I remember. I remember all of it. Do you remember why we're keeping the other one? What we came up with. Emil said nothing. We want to move you, you know. If you'd stay with us, we could. For some reason, though, when it's him, we just can't. Or we know we can't. Ugh. I can't think about it or my brain will hurt. She seemed to realize she was still rubbing her head. Hurt even more. It might be the fires. Emil raised his chin toward the window. You know... The fumes. The poison. Maybe. Maybe. Why not let me go? Your head will stop hurting, and I'll be free. Now Tanis laughed. Emil, I think you know our situation isn't quite so simple. He once spent a year as a minor lord on a desert world whose most complex technology was the windmill that he became a minor lord was just dumb luck, slipping into a body on the precipice of an inheritance. He might have facilitated the inheriting somewhat. Nothing dramatic, he's not a monster, after all. But still, good fortune to have arrived when he did. Yes, there was a great deal of sand very close by, and yes, the winds never truly stopped blowing, but the farmers and the hunters and the fishers and the traders did their jobs well, such as they were able, given the conditions and Emil had little to do save enjoy the perks of his position. The oasis he governed was full of beautiful young people, all of them enthusiastic about cultivating his goodwill. There was no shame or bashfulness regarding sexuality in the culture, and his partners were frank regarding what they expected in return from him. He was happy to give it, happy to encourage so mercantile an ethos, and, after all, they asked for remarkably little. His days were spent drifting in the secluded pools of the oasis, floating out into the sun, then back to the shade as he sought forever the precise, perfect temperature for relaxation. When his skin grew wrinkled, he dried ashore, drowsing in the hot wind, a welcoming lap for each of his feet to rest on and another for his head, his companions twirling his hair and massaging his toes as he listened to their idle, charming gossip. Music here proved to be a delight as well. While their instruments were simple, small plucked vials and a variety of flutes, the harmonies they coaxed from them were lush, the melodies ornate and virtuosic. It brought Emil great satisfaction to pay for lavish public concerts, to sit in the cool, dry night air and listen among his appreciative people. It was the small purple fruit that grew in the oasis that he truly stayed for, though— He had tasted nothing like it in any life on any world, and knew he would taste nothing like it ever again. Sweet, but not cloying, juicy, but not messy, it had a subtle undertow of spice, and, when perfectly ripe, was so rich and satisfying to chew that he spent some days eating only it. He perhaps would have spent his life here, in this world of wedges and windlasses, though mathematics was a popular subject of discussion among his people. Their understanding of it so advanced and abstract and lovely as to be incomprehensible to him. But a cousin called on him for aid in a territorial conflict. When he arrived at the battlefield with his handful of warriors, surveyed the forces that were arrayed against them, and listened as his cousin described the glory to be earned in a righteous death, Emil decided his time as Lordling should draw to a close. And besides, it seemed as though his coffers weren't quite so bountiful as he had first believed or perhaps his nightly concerts, were simply more expensive than he'd imagined. Regardless, he bid a silent farewell to his favorite lovers, to his favorite musicians, too, especially, that perfect purple fruit, and, as the great war beasts across the field thundered toward them, he held his nose, closed his eyes, and began to count down the seconds until he returned to Ut. The first few days he is restrained in his behavior. He's been doing this long enough to know how to blend in, to wait. Leisha can tell there is some change in him, some difference, that he is not exactly the man she knew before, but she is sweet and open and credulous, and when he tells her he is fine in response to her questions, she believes him. They go through their daily duties together, allowed to collaborate for this cycle. They are down work, currently, completing the tasks they are assigned rather than those they choose. Their days are filled with light manual labor and home health visits to those elderly who choose to live alone. It is tedious, but it never takes more than six hours, often fewer, and much of the day is occupied in strolling along the river, all the way down to the monastery, now a school, and back. The trees along the path so huge and ancient that their branches droop down to trail flowers in the water's current. The walks are pleasant, the climate here comfortable. Leisha has a talent for finding humor in even the most mundane acts, and as they speak of their day, she makes him laugh so hard his eyes water. At night, they sit in the town square, eating fried dough and soft, salty cheese, watching movies projected on the side of the government building or performances by the town players. One of them is a famous actor, Downwork, assigned here for three months, and she brings all the enthusiasm and skill to these local plays that she is known for in her most memorable roles, each show garnering rapturous stomps and whistles. And through it all, Emil knows he is watched, as are they all. You're in and out of here so often, Tannis said, and so quickly. She trailed off, her gaze distant. If I arrive as I'm leaving, do I wave goodbye or hello, right? Where I grew up, it was, if you leave as you're arriving. You're Southern, then? My parents were. And the flower grows, and the, if I have to hear that garbage one more time, Emile shook his head. The greatest of the Southern poets and he's garbage. I've always found him to be quite profound. He inspired me, certainly. He would, wouldn't he? All that pastoral, hand-holding, communitarian bullshit. There's a reason he was laughed out of Pergim in his lifetime. He was laughed out of Pergim because... Tennis stopped herself and took a deep breath, then sighed. I'm sorry you believe that, Emil. I don't blame you for it, though. Or your parents. I wish I could. It'd be easier to say you were an aberration. Holy Tan, I wish you were an aberration. She sighed again. All we're asking is for you to help people, Tana said. To help Oot. I don't understand why that so rankles you. You're not, though, are you? Not what? Not asking. I think you know this could be a rather different conversation than the one we're having. And why isn't it? Because we're trying to build a better world. And the oot we were born into. Whatever else you think of us, surely you recognize that. I recognize that any impediment to an individual's freedom is slavery. Distinctions among those impediments constitute only matters of scale, not of category. Tannis's mouth hung open for a moment and she blinked rapidly. Emil smirked in response. I can quote my heroes just as well as you can quote yours, he said. Sweet Damos, how are you old enough to know that? I haven't heard his nonsense in 50 years. He was a genius, Tannis. He was a moron and a megalomaniac, an inconvenient combination for anyone who happened to be affected by his truly idiotic philosophy, which, unfortunately, was all of us. He was an innovator. This is where innovation has led us, Emil. Where his innovations led us where faith in innovation and in innovators has led us. Tannis stood as she spoke, crossing the room to look out the window over Emile's bed. He knew what she saw. A city viewed from its outskirts, once home to tens of millions, now to a fraction of that. Many of its tallest buildings abandoned. Formerly gleaming facades pocked with broken glass and twisted metal, some even collapsed, fallen across thoroughfares and low lying buildings like great trees in a forest, the undergrowth still sprouting around their broken corpses. The toxic smudge on the horizon of ever burning chemical pits could be seen from where they sat and could be smelled throughout Lansolna. Hundreds of thousands of people soldiered on, though, trying to live their lives, refusing to acknowledge the ruin around them, or simply unable to confront how profoundly the world had changed. It doesn't have to be this way, though, Tana said. Oot's not dead. Not yet. It's easy to advance when you have a dozen lifetimes of experience to call upon, and knowledge garnered from hundreds of worlds. Well, perhaps not hundreds. Scores, certainly. Many of them he spent little time on, just long enough to be sure that these worlds were shit, too or that the body he'd been granted had lived a dull life with no possibility of excitement or pleasure. In those instances, he traveled back to Ut without delay, to his true body, the unfortunate, inevitable staging area he had to return to between his sojourns on other worlds. In many of those sojourns, though, he did find excitement. He did find pleasure. The bodies he dropped into presenting opportunities for some harmless hedonism or extended, indulgent leisure. And sometimes, Emil's favorite times, the confluence of world and body even allowed for the freedom he sought, the freedom to be who he wished, to do what he wanted, the freedom to loose the fire of his brilliance, the freedom which had been stifled on Ut, allowing it to fall as precipitously as it had. For almost two years, Emil lived on a luxury station orbiting a disease-ravaged planet. The footage that emerged from the surface was truly horrific. Bloody, weeping sores, deteriorating flesh, bones sagging through papery skin. Even glimpses of such scenes induced in Emil weeks of nightmares. And he'd seen no shortage of bodies ravaged one way or another. Medical sorties were dispatched on occasion, the station's doctors descending from on high to offer painkillers and euthanasia. This was all they could provide, though. No cure was in the offing. All the planet's most brilliant researchers were safely ensconced off-world, along with the resources necessary to consider a cure, and they were working to ensure that the virus remained safely on the surface. Emil began as the third child of a media tycoon. The culture of the station, and indeed the planet, was primogenitary to a degree which never made much sense to Emil, spending his days in oil baths and sporting contests. For several months this was enough for him, but the relentless underestimation by his father and older sister began to grate, her remarks on his slovenly comportment, an assessment with which he did not agree, particularly belittling, and he took it upon himself to prove them wrong. Possessed of only a vestigial sense of loyalty to his family, for this was how he thought of them, he had no compunction about betraying them and throwing his lot in with a rival media baron. Within a year, Emil had engineered a truly meteoric ascension for himself, the creation of a conglomerate which effectively controlled all forms of media on the station, and, ultimately, his family's downfall. With no lucrum remaining to secure their place, they would have been evicted from the station had Emil, now rich well beyond the comparatively modest wealth his family had formerly enjoyed, not generously bankrolled their remaining, though in somewhat diminished luxury. He did, of course, extract from each a public apology and admission of his brilliance, a modest cost, which all were happy to pay, all save Daliot, his sister, and the primogenit. She refused, a stubborn pride dooming her, and so was deported down to the surface, just as she'd had so many deported before her, their father's tears and pleas moving a meal not one whit. Dahliette said nothing to Emile as the shuttle doors closed between them, though her eyes, fiery and amused, never left his. The next year was stressful but rewarding. Emile's enterprise required constant tending to maintain, and though there were occasional attempts on his life, the undertaking of such complex machinations was zesty, invigorating, well worth whatever toll they might demand. In truth, Emile did what he did for the love of competition, for the satisfaction inherent in mastery, and the outthinking and outmaneuvering that Oot, in its glory, had once offered before his birth, that it no longer did. This station, this world, allowed for the type of unbridled commerce that thrilled Emile, and he sometimes considered whether he should stay forever. This resolve may have faltered somewhat when his conglomerate ran particularly gruesome videos from the surface. The gorier the better, or so the metrics advised. But Emile assured himself that these were unfortunate but necessary externalities in the pursuit of true liberty. Yes, it was vexing that the not insignificant degree of liberty already present in the world had not affected the plague's resolution, but surely, given time, a cure would be found. Of course... As is so often the case, when the good of the commonweal is deployed to motivate, in place of the more reliable personal gain, someone eventually got sloppy, protocols were violated, and the disease made it to the station. Quarantines ensued, isolation, the oil baths going untended, then rancid, the sporting matches postponed, then canceled, meals pared down to little more than subsistence portions, and the freedom the meal had won was stripped away he was confined to his quarters. More than just the virus reached the station, though. Perhaps unsurprisingly, with the quality of life so degraded, defense against boarding grew lax as well. Was it Daliot who battered down his door? Emile couldn't be sure. Whoever it was, their face was so ruined as to be almost unrecognizable. Was there some familiarity in that scalding gaze, though? A certain ironical nodding to the patchy eyebrows as the figure paused in the broken doorway, blood splattered, shoulders heaving, and surveyed the disorder of Emile's rooms? He would never know for sure. He could only consider it as he locked himself in the closet, the interloper crashing against the door again and again, waiting to be gone. He is a mid-level bureaucrat with some programming expertise when he is on work, in charge of maintaining equitable labor orders and a maximizing benefit. He doesn't touch the master algorithms, of course, but the leeway he is afforded allows for both a degree of local independence in assignments and a modicum of creativity on his part. This appealed to him once, or appealed to the man who he now is. The memories of satisfaction in helping a neighbor find fulfilling labor when he was down work, of managing a compromise with a haughty young genius. Certain she was being ill-used, of drawing a widower out from his grief with a well-chosen placement, of surprising Leisha with the downwork cycle of the farm, tending to the baby goats, these are present still, lingering, their shape on his mind like the impression on a pillow after hours of deep sleep. They are not his own memories, though, not truly. They are dissonant with who Emile actually is, with his values. Revolution, he knows, is continuous, just as equity and justice are not endpoints but constant struggles. He knows, but does not agree. Revolution is simply another word for restriction, the hemming in of freedom by those certain they know better than you how you should live your life. This world, with its harmony in its happiness and its rigidity, it roils him as no other has. If this doesn't qualify as dead to you, Emile said, I shudder to think what you imagine happening next. I imagine new growth. I imagine better growth. And I imagine the natural, necessary death that follows it. And then the new life birthed from that death. I imagine growth that benefits Oot, all of it, all its living creatures. And you directing that glorious growth, no doubt. Engineering it to effect some greater good. Me? No. Tannis shook her head. No, certainly not. That responsibility and privilege can belong to no one person. It can only be entrusted safely to all of us together. Every ounce of power vested in another is freedom stolen from me. Ut was poisoned by that type of thinking. Ut would have been saved by that type of thinking if it had been allowed to follow its natural course. This planet was doomed the moment the first corpo state fell and the first nation state was born. Do you truly believe that this is what anyone wanted? Those titans of industry and technocratic luminaries, they wanted a world that's barren and broken and, in many places, quite literally on fire? I don't think there was anyone wanting anything. I think that was the problem. If they'd had the freedom truly had the freedom to act as their brilliance demanded, this never would have happened. Instead, our government shackled them, because maybe, just maybe, somebody might have profited from saving the world. Maybe someone might have benefited from their own inventions a little more than everyone else benefited from them. And so they said, don't worry, we won't allow that. Look, now no one benefits at all. Emil laughed, then realized what he'd done. There, happy? Did it sound like the other guy? Tanis ignored him and returned to the chair across the room. She sat looking at Emil. her expression blank. Never mind, he said. In pre-industrial days, centuries past, Lanis Ulna had been a trade hub, sitting athwart the isthmus between two great inland seas. When he was younger, Emile and his friends had climbed the city's tallest skyscraper, the work of several hours its elevators no longer operable from the top floor both seas were visible and they ate dinner as the sun set over the northern sea turning it to a ripple of flame while big moon rose over the southern they explored their ransacked offices danced on the desks that were still there too heavy or unwieldy to plunder through the papers they found from the observation deck and observed their drunken descent swooping and wheeling like broken galls, cursed only to sink. Emile imagined the type of people who had worked here, who'd had the ideas which earned them such remarkable views. Emile imagined what he might have done, if he'd had the opportunity. The walk back down had been miserable, and they had to stop halfway to sleep, so dark and unnavigable was the stairwell. Emile's legs ached for days afterward, and, as he emerged the next morning, the smell of the canal, which had been blessedly absent thousands of feet above, made him double over and wretch. He'd managed to forget, for that one evening, how foul his city was. "'Emile,' Tana said, "'you have been on more worlds than anyone I've ever found, probably more than anyone on Ut ever has.' You pass between them as though between rooms in a mansion, with such ease and facility, that should you ever grow bored of one, you simply step through the threshold to another. Have you truly found, in all those many worlds, that Ute's system of suicidal selfishness disguised as liberty is the best? Emile said nothing. I want you to continue traveling. I want you to visit as many worlds as you can manage. All I'm asking is that you tell us of the worlds you visit. Let us know which we should explore and learn from, that you move on when it's time. All I'm asking is that you deploy that incredible gift of yours in a way that will benefit some other people in addition to you. Once more, Emil did not respond. Tanis said, Emil, there is a young woman called Sasha, and she can see different worlds, worlds that could help us. Worlds where people know how to do things that we need to know how to do, or how to build things that we need to know how to build. We have been visiting them, trying to gather what we can, trying to learn. But it is so slow, Emil, it is so difficult. For you, though, however it is you are able to travel, you can do it with so much more ease than any of our number. With Sasha, and with Yuhi, you could, if you can leave, Emil finally said then leave. Now Tannis didn't speak. She looked at Emile with such pity that he had to look away. This is our home, she said. We won't abandon it. Once, he'd spent an exhilarating six months as a futures trader. The world had discovered some sort of tool for temporal manipulation. Nothing as advanced as actual time travel, just a gentle nudging one way or another and their economy was premised almost entirely on trading possible outcomes. While the body Emil dropped into didn't understand the mechanics of it, he was apparently a rather successful prolepsis broker, and the lavish lifestyle this profession afforded Emile aligned rather perfectly with his tastes. Bad timing there, though. Revolution broke out just as he was really starting to enjoy himself. Almost no one predicted it. Ironic, given his profession and that of his peers. His best friend, Garrett, had indexed heavily in revolution, but it seemed as though he had not considered that whatever currency his investment earned him would have no value in the classless utopia the revolutionaries sought to bring about. He'd have bragging rights, at least, or would if he survived the inevitable purging of the elites. O'Meal decided not to stick around to see how that would go. He'd seen it before, of course, more than once and while there was a certain thrill to being on the other side of the bayonets, Emile may have participated in two or three revolutions himself, just to see what insurrection felt like, like flying, as it turned out, and falling, a great weightless uncertainty which the body accommodates itself to with almost terrifying alacrity. Emile knew exactly what the crush of people storming his building, drunk on rebellion and resentment, would do to him. Had he been in their position, he might have even said he understood it, or understood it as well as so benighted a worldview could be understood, worldviews requiring, as they do, more than just resentment. He'd seen the various futures this world could look forward to, after all, and though the brilliant and the powerful enjoyed a remarkable degree of freedom, sadly it seemed as though disaster was a question of when, not if. Amigo departed before the mob even made it to his floor a tinge of sorrow for the man he left behind coloring the moment just a tinge though it is infuriating to know that he is observed but to not experience the observation had there been watchers peering at him over folded newspaper at least then he could point to some external evidence to legitimize his anxiety but no there are no cameras No be-masked lurkers, no secret police posted up in shadowed windows monitoring all activities. There is only the town, its citizens, most of whom he knows or are known to those he knows. All he has are memories he can't claim as his own, a distant knowledge that a surveillance apparatus exists, but only rumors of the apparatus at work, whispered-of abductions that may or may not be real, disappearances of far-off second cousins. The closest anyone comes is the local censor, an ancient man who seems to serve no real role, as he spends each day in the town square, drinking tea and swapping stories with other old-timers. The sole institution under his purview, the town paper, a simple three-person operation, reports honestly and critically on both local happenings and developments in the regional capital, which apparently causes no problems, but fails entirely to even gesture toward the central government begging the question of what exactly it is that Gerald, the censor, is meant to be censoring. Emil doesn't know which is worse, that no one in his town objects to the control which yokes them, or that the yoke is so rarely felt. Somewhere, out in Ut, hidden in mountain lairs or on secluded islands, safe in palatial jungle compounds or undersea stations, inconceivable in their luxury, the masters of Ut still profited. The rich and brilliant still lived lives distant from the squalor that the rest of Ut endured, comfortable, tranquil, content. This was the rumor Emil had grown up with, the whispered promise that held back total collapse. That kept the denizens of places like Lannis Una working still, even as any pretense of normalcy had died decades past and continued to rot away to nothingness. Emil pitied them, They pretended as though industry still existed, as though their jobs had meaning, as though, with the rubble of a civilization piled around them, anyone needed insurance, or advertisements, or loans, or, indeed, money at all. Emil wished they did. He wished Oot still had enough life in it to sustain commerce and the innovation it bred. But then, perhaps it still did. Perhaps there was still time, with governments so desiccated as to be non-existent, for those reclusive geniuses to emerge and claim their rightful place at Progress's vanguard. Not with people like Tanis endeavoring to inflict her beatific vision on Oot, though. It comes down to a very simple question, Tannis said. Why won't you, at no meaningful cost to yourself, help the people of Oot Because I don't want to. You insult both of us with answers like that, Emil. They don't deserve it? It's not worth my effort. It would undermine those actually working to make their own lives better. Maybe all of them. Maybe none of them. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why I choose not to, because I choose not to. You will not take my right to choose from me. But why this choice of all choices? Emile threw his hands in the air. This is a profoundly boring conversation. And yet it's one we will continue to have. We've had it before. Your arguments are unpersuasive, and yet your refutations are even worse. Emile rolled his eyes but couldn't meet Tannis's gaze. We live these lives crimped by pollution and deprivation and degradation, Tannis said. But we don't have to. With your help, no one would have to. And you don't have to believe in anything more than that. You don't have to believe in anything at all. All you have to do, as you flicker between these many worlds is pause at the threshold just for a moment and let us follow at your heels. For years, Tanis's arguments had been unpersuasive. For years, every time he stopped back in oot, she would try to persuade him of the logic of her cause and he would dismiss her as a utopian fantasist. He'd let her talk at him for a couple of nights, debate her when he felt up to it, placate and patronize her when he did not. It was a game. He wouldn't be convinced, and she wouldn't relent. And when he tired of the game, he would leave, seek out adventure in a new world secure in the soundness of his beliefs and the justice of his philosophy. But then, it is not easy to ignore what you see, what you feel. What thoughts come unbidden, forcing their way in between the mundanities of your day and its pleasures, informing you of your own callousness. On world after world, he found suffering that made something clench inside him. On Oot, he could excuse it as just the way things were, as a product of the errors of the past. Why could he not do the same when elsewhere? He didn't know. In the beginning, he had left those other worlds without a second thought. Turned away, closed his eyes, known that whatever it was that made his mind churn and his stomach swim would never trouble him again. This had grown more challenging. Misery has an erosive effect. Given time, its witness will wear away even the most solid armor. To observe misery is to change however minutely, and Emile had observed more than his fair share. On many worlds he'd found it, Engendered by Utian attitudes and Utian systems, societies on the precipice of collapse, dozens of proto uts certain that their own cleverness could solve problems whose scale they'd failed to even properly conceive. More than once, Emile arrived just on the threshold of calamity and could see, with staggering clarity, exactly how the world would fall to pieces. Ecological, most often, though self-annihilation through war was not uncommon. There was a frenzy in those cultures, a lust, a hunger, that could be found in no other milieu. Doom, it seemed, was a spice of incomparable savour, and it was as though they knew, those who lived ensorcelled by its power, that they must feast while they were still able. At some point, though, he'd stopped enjoying the chaos and the ferment. At some point, he'd started to wonder if perhaps there might be a better way to live. Change is difficult, so Emil didn't. He knew he would never accept Tanis's request, her demands, her ethos. It was a matter of principle, after all. She couldn't be rewarded for what she'd done to him, what she continued to do. He couldn't give her the satisfaction. But neither could he find pleasure in his jaunts across worlds as he once had. He no longer felt the same confidence in the rationality of his worldview. Doubt that great enemy of genius, had begun to poison his convictions. It was a profoundly upsetting experience. Would he admit any of this to Tanis? Of course not. Pride ensured he couldn't. But the dark whisper of uncertainty had already begun its work on him. Soon, it would conspire with circumstance, with his own choices, to steal choice away entirely. Soon it would make him unfree. It takes a month for Emil to feel comfortable enough with Leisha to speak as he once did, to say the types of things he is no longer sure he believes. Those ideas remain in his head, at the ready, like clothes worn so often they fit the shape of him exactly. His shape has perhaps begun to change, though, warped by doubt's baleful grip, and while the comfort remains, the fit is now imperfect. The only way to know if his old belief still holds sway is to try them on. It is only when they are lying in bed together, in darkness, that he can speak openly, though. He trusts Leisha, feels he trusts her, but then he knows it is not his own trust he's experiencing. It's not quite him who's been with her for years. He's never traveled to somewhere where he had an already existing relationship. He's never had to consider how he slides into a world and occupies a space that had previously been occupied by someone who isn't him, not exactly. Someone who is made to be like him, yes, but a him of this world. A him who is not him. He feels as though he is somehow tricking Leisha. It is not a good feeling. I'm not sure I want to go on work again, he says. Oh? Well, we can put in for a rediv." Leisha says, and I could take a leave of the workshop. It's probably time, anyway. I'm always complaining about how much I'm on my feet, after all. It could be good to do something that's not with my hands. What were you thinking about for your rediv? I didn't have anything in mind. That's fine. It'd be nice to bank a couple of down work cycles anyway. Getting a chance to throw yourself fully into something new without having to worry about down work cycles interrupting it is pretty great. Her voice is warm, but tired. I don't want to be assigned anything down work, either. What would you do? Whatever I want. Something that isn't... I just don't... I don't think it's right. Any of it. What do you mean? Don't think what's right? Emil shivers. His breath comes shallowly. Trembles. I don't think anything is right. How we do things. Assignments. Work cycles. Restrictions. It's all wrong. For a moment, Leisha doesn't speak. You can't talk that way, she says. I understand, but doesn't it ever, you know, chafe? She turns to him, and though he can't see her expression in the dark, he knows the confusion that's on her face. It's the same confusion any of the denizens of this world experience when Emil broaches a topic that they never would, a topic they know better than to broach. The continued employment and role of Gerald, the censor, for instance. It's the confusion that appears whenever Emile challenges, however gently, their way of life. He tries again. Don't you ever just want to complain? About the way things are? I do complain. We all do. About how often the train gets delayed, or how the bus drivers use their routes to run errands? Yes. But, or when I have to do welding work on another of those horrible, tacky victory monuments? Or when the mess gets a massive load of green beans for the millionth time. Or when Lika boils them again, instead of trying something, anything new. Or when, Lisha, listen, what about the cause of all of that? He has to lower his voice. The walls in the dormitory are thin. When he speaks again, his voice is quiet. The reason we do things the way we do, the cadre, Don't you ever want to complain about the cadre itself? Leisha is quiet. Then, it's a very small price to ask, I think, biting my tongue sometimes. You don't think it's the greatest price of all? Freedom? To speak? To think? To act? Leisha falls silent again. Emil's heart beats so loudly, he feels certain she must be able to hear it. Above them are the gentle sounds of sex, muffled by the ceiling but audible, their upstairs neighbors happily in love. Somewhere, further off in their building, a child cries. A freight train passes by the outskirts of town, its horn doleful out in the darkness. Terror brings to Emile's attention a thousand things he would not normally notice. Emile, Leisha says, you know what it was like before. You had the same education I did. You saw the pictures, the films. You read the accounts. But do you believe it? All of it? Honestly? Do I believe that people suffered? I do. That some people went hungry while others ate to the point of sickness? Yes. That there were people who had to sleep in the streets while others went to bed in houses they called their own? Houses filled with empty rooms, warm rooms, rooms the people on the street needed? I believe all of it. Do you not? Leisha's face is an oval of shadow. Her smell, the lemongrass and clove of the town's soap, is in his nose. He shifts in bed. The sheets are plain but soft, and he always sleeps well here. He can think of nothing to say. Leisha says, When I think about the way things could be, The things so many other people would have to give up? The suffering, the misery, the hate, just so I can speak a little more freely? No, I don't feel like criticizing the cadre at all. That was a fake hiccup. Tannis looked surprised as she said it, surprised that she observed it, surprised she had spoken at all. What? No, it wasn't. Why would I fake a hiccup? I have no idea. Why would you fake a hiccup? I didn't fake a hiccup. Emil hiccuped again. That was fake, too. That was... Tannis stood, moving abruptly, crossing the room and leaned close to Emil. He shrunk away, back into the bed. Why are you doing that? Damos? I'm not. They're real hiccups. Emil forced another. It felt false, even to him. Do you have a glass of water? They drive me crazy, I swear. Some nut butter, perhaps? He took a deep breath. Do you? Tannis trailed off, looked away. Her brow furrowed. She turned to the guard. Do you remember him getting the hiccups? When it's him, I mean. Did it happen just before? She whirled, grabbed Emile by the hair, and punched him in the stomach. He gasped, his breath leaving his lungs, then inhaled greedily the wind knocked out of him. Why did you, he began, but Tanis didn't let him finish. Don't let him hold his breath, she said to the guard. That's how he travels. We can't let him. I'm sorry for hitting you, she said to Emil, but we can't let you leave again. I wasn't leaving, and I wasn't holding my breath. Why would I be holding my breath? It may have taken us four years to figure out your traveling, but please don't imagine me to be stupid. Four years? That's how long we've kept you, or, mainly, the other guy, under watch. You've been here, what, maybe a month in that time? I have no idea. I try not to think about Oot all that much. Four years. I would have given up if I were you. Yes, you would have. We have not, because we don't do this for ourselves. We do it for all of Oot. We can't afford to give up. Emil snorted. Do you want to know how Yuhi travels, Emil Tana said. When both moons are full, if he does a handstand, he'll come down in a different world. Everyone travels in a different way, some more easily than others. No wonder we couldn't figure out how you did it. How would we even have noticed? She punched him again. I can see you trying. Fine, stop. Fine, I'm not going anywhere. Emile slumped over. Sweet damos, leave me alone. It takes longer than that for me to leave. Well, you have an easier time of it than you, he. There's a reason under two moons means something that never happens. I had no idea how infrequent it actually was. And Carolyn? The last day of every fourth menstrual cycle, she wakes up in a new world. Can you imagine? If you stayed, if you worked with us, the good you could do. Tannis grabbed Emil by the chin and lifted his face up. Look at me, Emil said. I'm breathing. Happy? Holy tan, relax. I'm not interested in getting punched in the gut again. And I'm not interested in punching you again. So already our goals come into alignment. Tannis released Emil's chin and shook her head. What shall we do, Emil? She said as she walked to the door. She stood there glancing back at Emil occasionally, speaking in quiet tones with a guard, no doubt planning how they tried to keep him on oot. Ut- Emil lay down on his back, his stomach rising and falling rhythmically. Each body was different, with different lung capacities, different diaphragm strengths, but the first thing Emil did on arriving in a new world was begin practicing holding his breath. It took 117 seconds of breath-holding for Emil to travel, which most bodies he found himself in could manage but he needed to be able to do it in any circumstance. This body, his own, was practiced at it, the lungs strong, used to the exertion, the ability maintained even when he himself didn't occupy the body. By the time Tanis realized Emil was faking his breaths, thrusting his stomach skyward rather than actually breathing, it was too late. She and the guard crossed the room quickly, but Emil had wrapped himself in the mattress, curling into a fetal position. Their blows were muffled, but still hurt, and they were shouting, words Emile refused to hear. These would be his final moments on Oot. he knew. He could never return. Would never return. Farewell to the poisoned air, farewell to the broken cities. Why had he ever stayed for even a minute? Emile experienced a sudden weightlessness as the guard lifted him and threw him across the room. He clung to the mattress, crashing through the table and tumbling to the floor, breath leaving him in a gasp, but Leisha is beside him, helping Emil pick himself up. He has tripped and fallen as they walk to a table in the mess, spilling the food on his tray. She touches his arm, and he looks at her, sees her face for the first time, her broad cheeks and thin, laughing lips, and vertigo takes him once more. Already... A crowd has gathered around them to help clean up. They're not unfriendly when they come from. Emil and Leisha are weeding in the long gardens that run beside the river, arduous but satisfying work. The rows of squash behind him are clear, the dirt a rich brown, untroubled by sprouts or grass. Evidence of their labor lies to the side, hours of work neatly piled together. The blossoms will be picked soon, stuffed with goat's cheese and fried. The whole town will eat in the mess that night, private kitchens abandoned for the event. There will be merriment and joy, and the evening will end in music, the whole cavernous dining room singing songs together, some ancient and traditional, some patriotic, before the celebration sloshes out into the town square, every voice raised to the star-decked skies in full jolly harmony. There are three of them who arrive at the garden, two women, a man. Can we talk, Emil, the man says. Emil looks at Leisha, and she looks at him. They are on their knees in the dirt. For the first time, he thinks, he cannot read her face. He wants to say something, but can think of nothing to say. It is Leisha who speaks. Do I know you? She asks him. You do, he says, as well as I know you. These beds are full sun, and the sweet salt of perspiration is on Emil's lips. His shirt is damp, clings to him as he stands. Tugging off his gloves brings a delicious relief to his skin. His fingers throb gently, and he tosses the gloves beside the pile of weeds. Leisha stands as well, takes a step toward him, stops. She seems poised between motion and stillness, and though Emile waits for long moments, at their end, she is no closer to him. Is Emile all right, the man says. Would you prefer another name? Again, Emile looks at Leisha. She returns his gaze interested. No, Emile says. Emile is fine. It's close enough. They leave Leisha, weeding in the gardens, to walk along the river, the man to his right and one woman to his left, the other trailing behind. The sound of the rushing water is soothing, familiar from walks past. No one else is on the path, and Emil wonders if that is coincidence or engineered. He wishes he'd worn a hat, or sunglasses at least. It is very bright out. Is it easy for you to travel? The woman beside him asks. It is. Yet you've been here for some time now. I have. Do you plan on staying? I hadn't given much thought to it one way or the other, Emil says. Would you like to talk through your choice with us, the man says. Travelers can find our world, our way of doing things, to be challenging, the woman beside him says. They often have strong reactions when they arrive, strong reactions to the cadre. Reactions, which can be difficult to manage, the man says. The woman behind him, Emil notes, has said nothing. Emil says, was it Lisha? Did she say something? If you go back to her, the man says, do you want to know? Emile has nothing to say in response. The river is wider here, but further down, on the other side, Emil can see the school that was a monastery. It is a barn-like building, made of red stone, small windows lining its second floor, an expansive second wing sprawling beyond what a meal can see. The path they walk is ancient, its stones worn to gentleness by generations of monks making their way into town. They sold a liquor to sustain the monastery, the recipe unchanged for centuries. The liquor remains, though it is made in town now. There are no more monks. Let's cross the bridge, shall we? The man says. They do, going single file. The current beneath them is swift, but the water is smooth, the riverbed sandy. Once across the bridge, they resume their formation. Are you with anyone? The woman beside him says. Alicia? Other travelers, I mean. I'm not sexually interested in you, Emil. That was a joke. It was a poor one. The man says, I was amused. I appreciated it, Emil. Thank you. I'm glad. They walk in silence for a moment. Well, the woman beside him prompts. You monitor travelers, then, Emil says. He looks at the man, who shrugs. How do you... It's important you answer me, Emil, the woman next to him says. No, I am with no other travelers. I am alone. And do you intend to stay? Do I have a choice? Everyone has a choice, Emile. Always there are choices to be made. They crest a hill, and at the top there is a vehicle parked, overlooking the riverbank, one of the diminutive four-person buses for government use, though its windows are dark, opaque. They all walk toward it, though no words are spoken. It's smaller than the personal vehicles Emil has seen on other worlds, all transport in this one being communal, and rather ugly. It is out of place here, on the hill, in this world. The man walks the vehicle, opens the back door, stands by it. Emil cannot see what is inside. He cannot see if there is anyone else inside. There is only darkness. The two women are behind Emile though he's not sure how close. They are very quiet. We'd like to talk further about this, Emil, the man says. He gestures at the vehicle, at the darkness of the open door beside him. Is that all right with you? Emil hesitates. The red of the school, the blue of the water, the rippling, expansive golden green of the grass and the trees, it takes Emil by surprise how much he loves all of it. The air in his nose is fresh clean, alive with the scent of flowers and soil. Just on the edge of hearing, the sounds of the school reach him. Laughter, a fragment of song. All around there is sun and breeze and calm. It is, Emil says. He ducks his head to get in, his breathing light and relaxed.
0: You've just listened to, and the flower grows and the petal falls and I am left holding this withered stem. The story was read to you by the author. Ben Murphy lives in North Carolina with his wife and a small menagerie. After a brief but fulfilling career as an unsuccessful rock star, he turned to writing. A graduate of the MFA program at North Carolina State University, where he now teaches composition, he's at work on a novel. To find out more about Many Worlds, check us out at ManyWorldsForum.com Thank you for listening to Many Worlds.